0: Welcome to the pastor's study. Here's a man
1: who says, you know, pastor about 25 years ago, I committed adultery against my wife, never told her about it. And now I'm a believer, I go to church, I pray, but I'm pretty consigned to the fact that I'm going to hell when I die. Do you have any, any thoughts? And I said, yeah, <laughs> Ephesians chapter one, In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And I shared the gospel, the good news with him. Is there somebody watching this program today and you wonder if God loves you? You wonder if he forgives your sins? Well, I'm glad you tuned in. This half hour, we're going to go through a wonderful paragraph of the Bible, Romans chapter 5, and we're going to learn some great lessons about the extent to which God went to show you how much he loves you. So would you take out your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 5, and let's pray. Father, we do want to pray that you help us receive your love, believe your love, rejoice in your love, And Lord, if there's anyone here that's struggling with whether you love them, whether you can forgive them, we ask that the Holy Spirit would come and speak. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes this to the Christians in Rome. For while we were yet helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. I want you to notice the word helpless there do you know where it comes from in the bible where it says god helps those who help themselves that's not in the bible that comes from benjamin franklin's poor richard almanac in the 1700s this verse says god does help those who can't help themselves because we can't so here's my first lesson for today god helps those who can't help themselves Praise the Lord for that, because that's everybody. A lady asked a question once, why did Jesus say to the Pharisees, I have come to call sinners and not the righteous? And she said, didn't Jesus come for everybody? And the answer is, there are no righteous. The only people that exist are the sinners. So yes, Jesus came for everybody, but that's all us helpless sinners. And I want you to notice the uncomplimentary words that verse six uses for humankind, helpless, ungodly, then look down to verse eight, sinners, then look down to verse ten god 's enemies here 's the next lesson for today: Everyone is an ungodly sinner. There is a unity church near my house and The Unity Church is a cult. They say they're Christian, but they are not because the Unity Church believes we are all God. We are all part of the collective Christ consciousness. No, we're not. We are ungodly sinners. I passed a Presbyterian church. Now, Presbyterian church is a Christian denomination, but it said on the marquee, this Sunday's sermon, believe in yourself. And I thought, I don't want to believe in myself. I want to believe in Jesus. So the the first thing we learn from Romans chapter 5, we are ungodly sinners, but praise the Lord, God helps those ungodly sinners who cannot help themselves. Look at verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. In other words, it rarely happens, but now and then somebody dies for a good person or a good cause. But look how far beyond that God goes. Look at verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So here's the next lesson. You will never appreciate God's love until you see yourself as a sinner. Charles Colson now has died, but he got in trouble with Watergate, got converted, and he wrote these words years ago. On an August night in, seven, in 1973, despite the daily bombardment of Watergate charges, I saw nothing particularly wrong with myself. I knew what I had done was at least no different than what everyone else has done. People in politics played dirty. It was part of the game. But that night, when I sat alone in my car, My own sin, not just Watergate, but the evil deep within, was thrust before me by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, forcefully and painfully. For the first time in my life, I felt unclean. Then he writes, When we see the reality of our sin, when we come face to face with it and look it into the fires of hell itself, and then when we repent and believe and are delivered from that plight, Our entire being is filled with unspeakable gratitude to God, who sent his son to that cross for us. Again, the point being, you won't know how much God loves you until you realize what a mess you are, and he died to save you from your sin. I mean, this is why the people that were drawn to Jesus were the prostitutes and the thieves, because they knew they were a mess. But the people that didn't have any need for Jesus were the self-righteous Pharisees and I'm doing quite well, thank you. (laughs) I saw a wonderful documentary of a Christian ministry that is taking transvestite prostitutes off the street, bringing them into their homes, giving them housing, helping them with jobs, uh, bringing them to Christ. It was a beautiful documentary. But ask this question, did God love those prostitutes once they got cleaned up or did he love them while they were still in the gutter? According to this verse, God loved them while they were still in the gutter, while we were still sinners. And then look at verse 8 and answer this question. How did God show his love to us? And the ver- the answer is he died C.E.B. Cranfield was a New Testament scholar, and he said this about Romans 5.8. The word shows, in verse 8, the use of the present tense is noteworthy. The event of the cross is a past event, but the fact that it it occurred remains a present tense proof of God's love. Um, A Catholic priest and me, a Lutheran pastor and then an evangelical pastor, we were asked to come speak at a high school about the different faiths and afterwards, uh, Q and A time, and some high school girl puts up her hand and says to the Catholic priest, why does the Catholic Church have Jesus on the cross? And, you know, he rose from the dead, didn't he? Why do you see Jesus on the crucifix in a Catholic Church? And, you know, just so you know, that's been a complaint through the years that Protestants make against Catholics. I think it's a dumb complaint, frankly, and I think the Catholic priest had a good response. He said, well, of course Jesus is risen from the dead, but we have him on the cross to remind ourselves of the love of God. I have this hanging on my wall at home, Jesus on the crucifix, of course he's risen from the dead, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This reminds me of that. If I start to wonder if God loves me, if I start to wonder, does he really forgive my sins? This is what I can look at. Years ago, a pastor was walking down the street in London and coming toward him is a soldier limping, wounded. And the pastor went up to the soldier and said, thank you for being wounded for me. And the soldier said, well, you're welcome. I've had people give me cigarettes or buy me a meal when they see my condition, but you're the first one to say, thank you for being wounded for me. And the pastor said, and sir, I know someone who was wounded for you. The soldier said, who was wounded for me? And the pastor said, the Bible says Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. And he walked on, leaving him something to think about. <laughs> Listen, the supreme thing God did to show you he loved you is he was wounded. He took the pun- penalty for your sins so you could be saved. Have you ever said to God, thank you, God, for being wounded for me? I, ing- I invite you to do that right now out loud in your house or wherever you're at. Just take a minute and say, thank you, God for being wounded for me." Look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified, that means declared not righteous, n- not guilty, since therefore we have been now declared righteous, been declared not guilty by Christ's blood is death, much more shall we be saved by Christ from the wrath of God. There's two important lessons from verse 9. Lesson number one, we are already saved. Notice the word now there in verse nine. We are now, present tense, saved. Some people think you have to die to find out if you go to heaven or hell. No, you don't, you can know now. I was getting on the plane to go to Florida and I always say a prayer before I I get on the plane, this Lord set me next to someone. And so I'm sitting next to this 12 year old boy named Matthew. The plane takes off. And we talk and he finds out i'm a pastor and i said matthew do you go to church yes first baptist church of sarasota florida so i said well can i ask you what they teach you at that church he said okay i said matthew do you know what the trinity is i've never heard of the trinity so I explained, there's one God in three persons, Father who created us, Son who died for us, Holy Spirit who lives within us, not three gods, one God in three persons. Well, he understood Jesus was God, but he didn't know what the Trinity was. So I said, can I ask you another question? Do you know how the world's going to end? I didn't know it was going to end. So I explained, Matthew could happen tonight, we hear trumpets. We look up, Jesus comes down in the clouds, all the dead are raised, those who trusted him go to heaven, those who reject him go to hell, and then the earth melts with fire. He'd never heard any of this. So I thought, okay, let's get to the big one. One more question, Matthew. Let's say something happens to the engine of this plane, and we all go down in flames, and we're all dead in five minutes. Do you know where you're going to go when you die? And he got quiet, and he finally said, I don't. And I said, let me show you how you can know where you're going to go when you die. And I explained the gospel. Jesus is perfect. He died for your sins, rose from the dead. The Bible promises believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It doesn't say you might be saved. It says believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. God's going to keep that promise. So Matthew, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you're going to heaven for sure. Well, we talked about other things. But I remember before the plane landed, he brought it up again. He said, I just wanna understand this. You don't have to die to find out where you're gonna land. I said, that's right. I I can know now for sure I'm going to heaven because of Jesus. I said, bingo. That's the point of Romans chapter five. Now we are reconciled. And here's the second lesson from uh, Romans 5, 9 we will be saved from the coming wrath. There is a future tense to salvation. The Bible teaches that one day the world will end in fire. God is angry at the United States. God is angry at the world. One day the wrath of God is coming. But though, let's say this is Christ and this is you and me, those who are in Christ when the wrath of God hits at the end of time, we don't have to fear hell. We don't have to fear God's wrath because Jesus already took the wrath of God for us. Remember when he was praying in the garden the night before he was killed? Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. That cup was the wrath of God that he was going to drink on the cross the next day for our sins. So because the wrath of God has already been poured out on Jesus, if you're in Jesus, you're going to be saved from the wrath of God on the last day. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled we shall be saved by his life. I want you to notice the word reconciliation in that verse. In 1981 a Turk tried to kill the Pope, Pope John Paul II. He almost succeeded. The Pope was mightily wounded, the Pope healed, and the pope went into the guy's prison cell, sat down, had a long talk, and reconciled with this assassin. In fact, the story is that periodically through the years he would call and they would talk, and he had reconciled. That, that is uh, the next lesson. The word reconciliation means I have a personal relationship with a friend. God is my friend now, and I have a personal relationship with God. It's kind of like what the pope did. God came to our planet and we killed him, but God used that death of Christ as the means of reconciling us to him. Has anybody ever asked you, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? I remember the first time I was asked a similar question. I was in college. I was raised Lutheran. We didn't talk like that. And somebody asked a question like, Tom, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? and my answer was yeah <laughs> i didn't know what they were talking about i know what they're what what it means now a recon, uh, we're reconciled means this that god and man were enemies we didn't like God, we didn't want him to touch our lives, I'll do it myself, thank you. And God was angry at us in our sin, so God sent Jesus to make at at-one-ment, atonement, to make God and man at one again. When he died on the cross, paid for our sins, he, boom, put us back together again. So now I have a personal relationship with God. And that's not a kooky thing. You know, I have a friend who, I don't know that he's a believer, but he asked me some time ago, Tom, do you think you have a personal relationship with God? And I said, yeah, and you could tell he thought, what a kook. Well, no, personal relationship simply means he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. In other words, I talk to God, it's called prayer. He talks to me through the Bible and I know him. I have a personal relationship with him. I used to worry about my mom because my mom went to church, but I never once caught her reading the Bible. And so through the years, I'd say, Mom, don't you think you should read the Bible? But when she was 80 years old, she said to me, Tommy, I've read my Bible through twice in the last two years, and God is my best friend. That's what reconciliation is. Let me ask you, do you have a personal relationship with God? Not do you hear voices, but do you pray? I will tell you, I think, I think that's a key. I, I was interviewing candidates for the choir director years ago, and we had a number of candidates, and I asked each one, do you pray? And I remember one candidate kind of paused, and he said, now and then. And another candidate, do you pray? She said, all the time. <laughs> do you have a personal relationship with God? That's what Jesus came to bring us. Last verse is verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Here's the last lesson. The Christian life is a life of rejoicing. I was raised in a Lutheran church in Omaha, and I'm grateful for that church. They taught me the Trinity. They taught me the second coming. They taught about salvation but i don't remember there being a lot of joy in that church and then one day a friend of mine invited me to the omaha gospel tabernacle downtown and i went to this church on sunday morning i had never heard people singing like this it was wonderful and then the preacher got up i'd never heard such a good sermon in my life and you know what he preached if your faith in jesus doesn't periodically make you want to jump up and down and shout, something's wrong. (laughs) If your faith in Jesus, the forgiveness of your sins, eternity in heaven, if that doesn't make you jump up and down now and then, something is wrong. That's the point of this verse. The Christian life is a life of rejoicing. Here was an out-of-towner walking down the street of St. Louis, and he stops the policeman. Say, it's Sunday morning, do you know a church around here? And the policeman said, yeah, go down that street, turn left, and there's a church there. And the man said, you know, there's got to be a lot of churches on your beat. I'm just curious, why did you recommend that church? The policeman said, I'm not a religious man. I don't go to church. But I noticed through the years, the people that come out of the door of that church are the happiest people in St. Louis. The Christian life is a life of rejoicing. So I'm just going to close by saying this. Do you wonder if God loves you? Do you wonder if he's forgiven your horrible sins? Can I ask you to do something for the next seven days? Once a day for the next seven days, say these words, God, thank you for being wounded for me. Amen.
2: Welcome to the portion of the pastor study where we now ask Pastor Brock to share with us his knowledge of scripture and his insights to answer questions we have regarding the Bible, our Lord, and our everyday walk with Him. In light of your sermon today that you were talking, did God the Father die on the cross?
1: No, God the Father did not die on the cross. In fact, Jackie, I had an associate pastor that I worked with, and one morning in church he prayed God the Father, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. And I took him aside afterwards. I politely said, you know, that's, that's a heresy. It's called Uh The Father did not die on the cross. The Son died on the cross. So, and, and you could say, but aren't they one? They are one, but there are three distinct persons. So, no, Jesus died on the cross. Now, God the Father, I'm, it grieved his heart, but it was God the Son who died on the cross.
2: <laughs> okay. Isn't it arrogant for a person to say that you know you're already saved? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, I, I, I've had that talk with people, and you know, who are you to think that you know you're going to heaven? Well, it's arrogant if it's ba- if I think it's based on me. If I think I'm going to heaven because I'm such a good person, then then you don't get it. The reason I know I'm saved, First John five thirteen, I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Jackie, sinner that I am, I know I've got eternal life. Why? Because it doesn't depend on me. It depends on Christ and his death on the cross. So then you can know, and it's not an arrogant thing, because I didn't do it. (laughs) He did it.
2: Okay. You know, we say God is love, but what do you mean? Because God is also wrathful,
1: isn't Mm -hmm. he? Yes, he is. And a popular book called The Shack, they made it into a movie, where God appears as a black woman and so I didn't read the book I went to the movie and you know much of the movie is good and much of what it teaches is good but the line that killed me is this man who says to God what about your because God this black woman is telling all about her her love for for him that's the other problem I had (laughs) God is a father, but anyway, uh, God, God, the the woman in this thing, is telling the guy about her love. And finally, the guy says to God, but what about your wrath? And God says, what wrath? I'm thinking, what? Read Romans chapter 1. Paul puts all the non-Jews under the wrath of God for worshiping idols. Read Romans chapter 2. God puts all the Jews under God's wrath for breaking the Ten Commandments. It's only in chapter 3 that we're, of Romans that we're saved from God's wrath by the death of Christ. So, yes, God. You know, there's a verse in Pro, uh, Psalms, Jackie, that says God has wrath every day. He should. Well, yeah, I know.
2: When you look at how people are living their lives and what's happening in our country. To me, the
1: the American heresy is because God is love, which he is, that's in the Bible, God is love. Because God is love, I can do whatever I want, and he doesn't care. That is is evil. God is wrathful.
2: Okay, Pastor Brock, Calvinists believe that in the total depravity of man, don't they? Yes,
1: they do is that biblical it certainly is (laughs) again read romans chapter three the first half of romans chapter three that is paul's assessment of mankind and paul draws in romans three he picks all these old testament verses and he lists them about how evil mankind is total depravity does not mean we're as bad as we could possibly be i mean we could be worse but it does mean that Total depravity, sin, when Adam and Eve sinned, it didn't just infect our minds, it infected our hearts, our emotions, our relationships, our attitudes, so total depravity.
2: But isn't total depravity a real negative way of thinking? And I guess, shouldn't Christians be joyful and positive that we know?
1: Yes, that's true. Uh, Here's the deal. It kind of contradicts it. I, I don't like the positive thinking I mean, certain preachers, I won't name them, but it's all about positive thinking. And all you got to do, Jackie, is is be positive, and, and, and you're going to get that better job. And No, no, you got to admit you're a sinner to become a Christian. Now, what the second thing you said, though, is doesn't that bring us joy and a positive outlook on life? It sure does. So there's a balance here. But let's not fall off of one side of the horse.
2: Pastor Rock, can you explain atonement? Yeah. Because i think that's a a confusing thing for even a christian Mm -hmm. to understand Mm
1: -hmm. in romans 3 is where we get the atonement at one meant that god and man were like this god in his holiness hated sin we in our rebellion hated god jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins so that god could bring his forgiveness and his love toward us to make us at one again that's what atonement means so yeah
2: okay We've got about a minute and a half left, but Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, we're seeing so many different churches shying away from the gospel and preaching and that. What do you do to find a good church, I guess?
1: I'm going to tell you, Jackie. Uh, we, you and I in our church, we were in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. I, I, it's time to leave that denomination. They have professors in our seminaries now teaching Jesus did not die to pay for our sins. They, they reject what's called the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That's the gospel. They pay for abortions with offering dollars. They pay for sex change operations. This is the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. I'd leave that church. I'd very much leave the United Church of Christ, the Episcopal Church in America, the Presbyterian Church USA, and now the Disciples of Christ also have joined all those churches in in blessing homosexual behavior. Time to leave and there are good Lutheran denominations, Presbyterian denominations, good um, Episcopal uh, uh, offshoots now, but uh, just make sure your church is following the Bible and if it's not, find a good church and stop giving your money to these churches that are denying Christ, yeah.
2: But will God forgive those churches for doing that?
1: If If there's true repentance and faith, I don't see any repentance going on in those denominations. They're going full guns it gets weirder by the day. I follow this stuff. It's getting worse, not better. So,
2: well, we have a sad world to have to live in right now, and we just want to thank you for being here with us, and we pray that God will rich- give you his richest blessings until we're together again next
0: time. Thank you for watching the pastor study.